0: This week's podcast from our Battle of Ideas archive is called Are We All Vulnerable Now? It was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 at the Barbican in London.
1: We're going to start. I'm Catherine Eccleston. I'm Professor of Education at the University of Sheffield. One of the things that struck me at this year's Battle of Ideas, and I've been involved with it for over 10 years, ever since it started, is that discussion about vulnerability and the invocation of vulnerability has really only emerged in the last two. But this year, it seems to be everywhere. And it's even in some of the Battle of Ideas' own promotion, so Freedom of Speech Readathon, which looks absolutely fascinating. Are you feeling vulnerable? Are you easily offended? Are you scared of nasty words? Do strong opinions frighten you? Then if that's come to the free speech and build some backbone. And if we look at it at a policy level, Vulnerability used to refer, before 1995, to only those in extreme physical, economic, health circumstances. But it now officially describes a huge range of people, including those receiving counselling or palliative care. In everyday life, it describes everybody who needs our sympathy. This week I had an email about a course that I could go on to help teachers learn strategies to help pupils vulnerable to not meeting their assessment targets. A student at my university told me this week that students are far more vulnerable than old people like me in our generation because they pay such high fees and the stakes of getting a good degree are now so high. The Department of Sociology at my own university has introduced the first master's degree in vulnerabilities and protection. And I think it it must be a really vulnerable week this week. Uh, The manager of St. Helens' rugby team, uh, whose player was attacked by Ben Flowers from the Wigan team in the first two minutes of the game and then suspended for six months, described Ben Flowers as a vulnerable young man who needs all our support to manage his six-month suspension. And the examples just go on and on. And in the motivational talk by American speaker Brené Brown, which is on the website resources for this session... She, sa- she tells us that she wakes up every day feeling vulnerable and scared. But for her, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a chance for human connection, for empathy and resilience. What makes us vulnerable makes us beautiful. <coughs> and it's uh, also interesting, I noted <coughs> that in a growing market of courses to develop those things, empathy, resilience, etc., her website advertises her own books and programmes to do just that. So, this raises a whole load of questions, uh, many, many questions. One, of course, can resilience really be taught? Or if we become more and more obsessed with vulnerability, does it just make us more and more dependent on external support and actually sap our resilience? What happens when educational relationships, the legal system, welfare policy is increasingly founded on the images of participants as vulnerable? Is that empowering? Is it disempowering? Of course, it's neither one thing or the other. So, what images of the human subject are invoked uh, when we start to use vulnerability both officially so widely and in everyday language and practice so casually um, and easily? I'm going to introduce the speakers in the order in which they will speak and start on my left with Mark Taylor, who's deputy head teacher at Addy and Stanhope Comprehensive School in London. He teaches history and classics and coordinates professional development for newly qualified teachers across the school. He's London convener and chair of the Education Forum for the Institute of Ideas and a trained football coach, but he says that teaching history is really where it's at. That's Mark. Deborah Green has been working in the field of student support at the University of Sheffield for 24 years. She currently heads student support and wellbeing services which include counselling, health, disability, dyslexia, international student, student finance, student induction, one-to-one critical support and multi-faith chaplaincy. She's especially interested in equality and diversity, and faith matters in universities, and how to create support that is focused, appropriate, and bounded. Jen Lexman is a social research and policy analyst, over there on my right, focusing on family and early childhood. She's director of a company called Character Counts, and the company works with partners such as the Royal Society of Arts, the Design Council, Guy and St Thomas Hospital Foundational Trust, Centre Forum, the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Social Mobility. And she's co-authored two influential reports for the think tank Demos on character. And she was a leading contributor to the recent uh, report from the All-Party Parliamentary Group, uh, which is called the Resilience Manifesto, which was published uh, just this year. And finally, Simon Wesley is Professor of Psychological Medicine, Head of the Department of Psychological Medicine, Director of the Centre for Military Health Research at King's College London, Honorary Consultant Advisor in Psychiatry for the British Army, recently appointed Chair of the Royal Society of Psychiatrists, and he's published widely on topics such as chronic fatigue syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. So can we greet our panel and welcome them to this discussion? <laughs> okay. Mark.
2: Okay, um, could I just check with the audience, as I'm a progressive teacher, is anybody in the room actually prepared to define themselves as vulnerable? So two people that I can see, although your hands aren't very high guys, okay, so okay, there's a few, uh, and does anybody know anybody who's vulnerable? Okay, so the, the word has some purchase. Any idea is relevant if it serves to answer a question. And I don't know what question was asked that led to the term vulnerability being proposed as the answer. I do accept that there is something in the word vulnerable because it's got a long history, although it seems to be connected to military attacks and being wounded. I think the origins of the word are connected in in that way. What I'm concerned about as a teacher is that if if you are presented with a group of children, as you sometimes are in schools although I think Catherine's correct to identify at the start that vulnerability is kind of on the rise. I don't think it's dominating, uh, certainly the school I'm in, and I don't think it's you know, by, by any means accepted, but I can see that it could become a really key word, uh, which I would be concerned to make sure we have a balanced response to. What I think it means to many teachers is stop thinking. Stop thinking about the child in front of you, And stop thinking about the way you can develop them intellectually and start seeing them as a kind of object that you must look down on in a way. Um, But this word somehow expresses the fact that they're never really going to communicate with you intelligently for themselves. I recognise that I might be overstretching it and I was pleased in a way that so many of you know someone who's vulnerable because I I can't think of anybody that I would define as vulnerable. Once I've met somebody and talked to them, uh, it ceases to exist as a useful category, but I'm obviously we're here to just talk about this issue. I've got th- I think I've got th- there are about twenty of my students here today and there's at least three of them in the audience. And again I could be, you know, doing what a t- typical teacher does, which is just I'm controlling them with my didactic approach. But I don't think you're vulnerable. I would hate to think of you as intellectually vulnerable, although you know, I'd be prepared to have that discussion with you. But it's just something as a teacher I feel really uncomfortable about using as a, as a term to define anybody, any human being in front of me. So that, that's my kind of starting point. It means stop thinking about the person in front of you. Stop working it out intellectually with the subject and the student. I think as a cultural force, which I think it's becoming, it represents an attack on aspiration in the guise of protection. And I think it's an attack on knowledge phrased in the language of learning. To go back to the military metaphor, it, would, it could take you to whether Caesar was vulnerable to attack or I'm indeed vulnerable to intellectual attack today. But previously we'd, we would have just said you're open to attack. I'm not saying it doesn't have a meaning because it must express something specific about human actions. But as I've done my reading guided by what Catherine has said a few weeks ago to get ready for this, I found that it's actually the military stuff that I want to go back to, the subject that I teach. Why was the German army at Stalingrad vulnerable to attack? That seems to mean something to me, rather than that group of children are the vulnerable. It's become a kind of noun, collective noun, separated from any kind of action or doing, and a kind of, if you like, anti-intellectual dumping ground. I am prepared to, you know, work it out with you, though. Does it mean I don't care? Uh, well, probably in some ways, yes. But in general, no, I, 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 it doesn't mean I don't care. It just means that I think this word, because it's become so autonomized from any other force, it's generated its other, its natural other, which is bullying, aggression. People who do things to the vulnerable. So it's a word that cannot personally, I feel, help me very much, or my students, in understanding the subject that we're trying to do Uh, intellectually and work it out as a teacher. So I I do feel very strongly that I've got to keep bringing it back to what my core role is. You may feel that my core role is to make sure children leave my care uh, in loco parentis, undamaged and not vulnerable, but I have to keep saying it's my primary role is intellectual. Intellectual in the sense that a child could then decide whether they are themselves uh, vulnerable. They've got the right to have that thought and work it out themselves intellectually. To me, this is such a word that does to others what we would not do to ourselves. I mean, on the on the count in the audience, there was two people who defined themselves as vulnerable, but a lot more of you put your hands up to say that you know somebody who is vulnerable. Do, have you had that conversation with that person? That would be one of my questions. What explains it? I think a lot of well-meaning people are in education, but they're perceived to be not in schools. We're, we're seen as um, people who are really basically not really interested in the children and the the higher level of wisdom at universities where they care for you have developed the idea that everybody's got to be nice to each other. Yes I do shout at children sometimes and I regret it and wherever possible I apologise but I've probably done it to somebody that considers themselves vulnerable but all of that stuff used to be part of what a teacher and a student did and you were trusted to do it. With the term the vulnerable coming in it means that your autonomy is further uh, removed and your, your potential to work something out with a student over the long run diminishes, which again, I think is a danger to my educational role. As I said, my school doesn't currently use it that much. It, that may be something to do with my own influence, but it, I think in gen- it's more that we have currently in a, at a kind of launch point. We've, got a, we've just opened a sixth form. We're more interested in developing people to get to the top intellectually than not emotionally i recognize the power of emotions and the need for them but we're trying to really focus on subject knowledge i do accept that there could be some use for this term and there could be a way to shift this debate but i think in my current position in my current school it's not helping me or our students work out who they are intellectually and where they're going to go intellectually so is there a mood for it yes Uh, am i trying to remove it Probably because I think it removes the potential for us to be invulnerable. Humans are incredibly resilient overall, and that would be my major worry, that it tends to create the idea of us as always subject to forces beyond our control rather than able to solve our own problems.
1: Thank
3: you you very much indeed.
4: Thank you. Well, are we all vulnerable now? There are probably areas in which we are all vulnerable at times. Since the dictionary defines, um, as Mark was just saying, vulnerable as being capable of physically or emotionally wounded. And there may be occasions when we could all accurately use that for ourselves temporarily. Okay. But vulnerability, being vulnerable is now taken to mean that people should be protected from pressure, from challenge, from difficulty, and not be penalised for shortcomings or failures that are seen to be related to that. I'm obviously coming at this from um, a university perspective, working with students who are predominantly 18 plus, and one of the, part of the job is not to be in loco parentis, unlike schools. We legally and um, intellectually don't consider ourselves to be in, in loco parentis. We're not. We're adult institutions. And part of the job is, I was interested to hear that the scene is looking after you. I think there is a big customer service element in the way that universities run Services now very much from a customer service point of view. But I believe that part of the job of universities is to present students with challenges. Maybe all the job of universities is to present students with challenges—academic, cultural, societal, personal—and help them to meet those challenges. And of course, we do have students that I would define as vulnerable. For instance, just some examples: the student has just discovered that as a toddler, she was sexually abused. And her next module in law is going to include a lot of seminars on child sexual abuse. I would see that in that situation perhaps it would be reasonable to to take special steps so that she was not at a time when she'd just learned this about herself thrown into discussions about it. Um, A student with Asperger's who can't cope with noise in a hall of residence... And didn't know that he couldn't, didn't know what the level of noise was going to be like before he moved in and couldn't reasonably. The student was diagnosed mental ill health measurably, and I hate, I said diagnosed and measurably um, increases stress at the time of exams. But there are the students who self diagnose with anxiety, low mood, hypersensitive personality is the latest one I've heard, um, issues that they would rather hold on to than learn to repair. I think that's part of it, the idea that, that this is me, I, I, I am like this everything has to change around me. Or those whose families encourage them to do that by offering unquestioning support and insisting that all others do so as well. Popular culture encourages concepts of vulnerability, the need for professional intervention, parental involvement. We have parents turning up just in the last week to study skills session for a dyslexic student. This is a a university student living away from home and mum and dad coming in to sit in with their study skills sessions. We've had them turning up at the first day of graduate employment. They come to induction events. This is all very much um, infantilising the experience. There's an expectation that, from many of our students and some of my colleagues that somebody shouldn't have to feel sad or feel bad, even for a short time. And I think it's not possible to go through life without learning how to cope with occasionally feeling sad, feeling bad. Displays of distress are seen as evidence of mental of mental health crisis and therefore an emergency. How, how much we can actually impact this within a university, I'm not sure. It's a, something that people are coming with. It's a societal and cultural force. Social media reinforces the culture of it's not my fault, people should treat me differently, gently. And if you look at Facebook and so on, as I often do, I, I do have a lot of Facebook contact with, with students and so on. It's things like saying, oh Han, poor you, how could they do that to you, you better complain, rather than, okay, what can you do about this? What steps can you take? Being vulnerable divests one of responsibility, responsibility to meet challenges. It places any blame for the inability to cope with the situation on the other, not on the individual concerned. Universities are under pressure to make students employable for the £9,000 a year tuition fees to produce financial returns, very much seen as it's training for a job, it should be the more you pay, the more guaranteed a job should be. But surely there's more to good education than being able to get a highly paid job. I think part of that is being able to live as independently and responsibly as possible. I don't think we can teach resilience in the classroom. I don't think we should try to actually say, right, now we're going to have a lesson on resilience. I do think, though, that we can teach it by being realistic and real-worldly. And working to reduce the sense and perception of vulnerability by broadening our expectations and requirements, encouraging people to see what they can do, not necessarily alone, but what they can do to to challenge the expectation that someone else needs to do something and they need to do that something now. I don't think either that we should lower academic bars to compensate. You know, I'm very vulnerable, therefore I should not have to be examined in the same way as other students. Universities find the demand for medical notes for extenuating circumstances for stress and sleepless nights around exams and deadlines have increased enormously. Without anybody ever seeming to say, well, exams are stressful. You know, it's normal to be stressed, and in the same way, it's sometimes normal and to be sad. There's supposed to be an urgent and emergency response from the institution. I must make clear that when a student is disabled which includes long-term illnesses and and diagnosed conditions, we must and do put in place reasonable adjustments. And that's to level the playing field. My argument here is that we're being asked to put in place unreasonable adjustments and not necessarily for for diagnosed or um, uh, agreed conditions. And I would argue that this doesn't help prepare the students for the world beyond or to be stronger people able to manage everyday disappointments and challenges better than they could when they came in as freshers. So I'm saying let's teach resilience, but let's do it by challenging vulnerability, not by formal classes. Thank you very much indeed.
1: (laughs)
5: Jen. Great. Hi, everyone. Uh, So are we all vulnerable now? I wanted to come at this question from... Uh, where we start out in life so from a human development perspective and I'm hoping one thing we can all agree on is that when we come into the world we are definitely very vulnerable as infants um, babies are much more vulnerable even than other types of animals we've got these big brains but we have absolutely no ability to take care of ourselves or protect ourselves instead what we have is this kind of optimistic, inbuilt optimism that someone is going to take care of us, that our parent or carer will be there for us, will provide for us, respond to our needs, listen to us and be there, we we sort of come into the world trusting. And what happens when that trust is returned is that we start to build a sense of security in our world. We know if we're hungry, if, if we're alone, if we're vulnerable, that we'll be held, fed, cared for. If you have that that setting in your early years, what what happens is that you gain from it the current ker- a kernel of resilience. You gain an ability to you feel safe enough where you are to go out and challenge yourself, to explore the world, to um, to leave the, the the confines of your of your parents' shoulder and go and look around. And when you fall over, when you get hit by something, when you get a knock or a bruise, you have uh, enough inner strength and resilience to bounce back from that. But what happens when that early, secure foundation isn't in place? There's a a, a famous study from the 70s. It's called the still face paradigm. You can watch it online. It's it's quite distressing, actually, um, as some of the studies they did in the 70s were, um, when ethics were different. But what happens in this study is that a mother um, is instructed to completely stop interacting with with her small child, and the infant very, very quickly becomes deeply upset, waving at its mother, um, making a high-pitched screaming noise, trying in vain to to make that connection with its mother again. And when that doesn't work, within seconds, you see the baby essentially just give up. You you sort of see a light switching off. Now, obviously, in the the setting of this experiment, the mother comes back to life, the trust is renewed, there's no long-term damage, But what can happen in situations where uh, responsiveness, consistent love and warmth isn't present is that it leads to this sense of complete insecurity, a total inability to self-control emotions, to manage setbacks. So what I'm saying by that is that we're born vulnerable and resilience, we give rise to resilience through having supportive and safe environments, particularly at the beginning of life. So from that starting point i'm going to just share a few things for why i think resilience is worth focusing on the first the second thing i want to say is that character resilience emotional control is actually these sorts of skills are actually more malleable over the life course than a lot of the stuff we tend to focus on like iq for example so by the, by the time you're age 10, your IQ is what's called rank stable. You're not really going to overtake anyone else. You're kind of where you are. But conscientiousness, for example, that actually peaks around age 50 or 60. So if you look at empirical evidence, there is a huge amount of malleability or change over time for skills like conscientiousness or non-cognitive skills. There's lots of different words for this. Um, but for me, that means that, yes, this is something that's worth exploring further, um, we can change things. We can develop these skills. Um, it's worth it. The third thing I want to say is there there are there are crucial and sensitive periods in the life cycle for the development of resilience and character. Uh, one of them is the early years, as I just said. Uh, the second one is actually. Late adolescence, early adulthood, and both the reason these these areas have been identified is because of the way brains are developing so by late adolescence and early adulthood there's a new kind of burgeoning of neural growth in the prefrontal cortex, which is part of the brain that that helps us do things like plan ahead, complex reasoning make it, making delaying gratification to the long term so there 's these two periods of life where because of the way we're developing, they're particularly sensitive and open to, to investments and interventions. Um, the fourth thing I want to say is that there are sort of, we know a little bit about what works in environments and interventions to support people in those times. In the early years, as I said, it's all about increasing positive parent-child interaction or parent or uh, care child interactions. And a big part of that is reducing toxic stress amongst parents. So Trying to reduce uh, things in, in parents' lives that make it almost impossible for them to provide warm, consistent, supportive care. So that might be abusive relationships, whether that's with drugs and alcohol or an abusive partner. It might be reducing financial, major financial instability, it might be reducing intense social isolation that makes that r- massively reduces a parent's sense of well-being. In later youth and adolescence, what seems to be working are programs where a teacher or mentor can provide scaffolded learning to a young person. What I mean by that is a teacher or mentor is able to um, get a reading on an individual and set them challenges, which is something we've heard already. Um, challenges that are stretching and difficult for that person, but not so impossible that they fail at it and it, it erodes their, their confidence over time. If you can scaffold learning in that way, there is some pretty good evidence that this can build resilience. So that's really what I wanted to say for now. And the, the last thing is just that these skills, uh, non-cognitive skills, resilience, emotional, um, intelligence, persistence, confidence, these things matter to outcomes. Conscientiousness matters more than IQ in, deter- in predicting future earnings. Um, there's a lot of similar evidence like that I can share. So these things matter. We're getting better at measuring them. We're learning more about how to build them. But ignoring them because it's challenging, I don't think, is the the way forward. Thank you very much. Simon.
0: Good. Well, thanks, Jen, telling me that my years of appearing on University Challenge are long since behind me. And all I can look forward to is years of becoming increasingly obsessionally, irritably conscientious. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Now, I was going to say something else, but I've been scribbling out something different because I was completely thrown by an email I got about an hour ago. This was from someone who said, I'm very sorry to be missing your talk. Vulnerability is something I feel passionate about. However, I'm sure you will be very inspiring. Now, oh dear, oh dear. Um, She managed to use the three words that most upset me in the English language in one sentence. I can say this because I know by definition this person is not here. Um, I'm not intending to be passionate when I get feedback. I'm rather pleased if I'm just mildly interesting. I regard that as a compliment. And as for inspiring, if I'm moderately amusing, that has been a good day. But everybody, you know, you can only be, there's only a very few things in life you can be passionate about. You can be passionate about your family, Chelsea Football Club, and that's about it, to be honest. And vulnerability. Is in the same thing. It's a word now that has used so much it's ceased to have any meaning. And if you look back and s- look at the usage, I mean, I actually looked out. You know, there's this program. I only found out about it last night, and I've been up all night on it. Something called ngram. You probably all know about it, don't you because you're all terribly clever and young. But it's a thing you can use on Google, and you can look at the history of words and phrases. Okay? She's right. You don't. You didn't know that, Jen? Nope, she, I didn't know. No. Okay. Either. Oh God. God, I, I can't possibly be trending. You're, inspiring. I can't possibly have You're inspiring. No, I'm not inspiring. Anyway, <laughs> if you look, it's completely, for 100 years, the phrase, we are all vulnerable is completely flatlined, apart from two periods, 1914 to 18 and 1939 to 45. I can't think what went on in those years, but obviously something did that made people feel slightly vulnerable. But after about 1965, it's a veritable Matterhorn, so it's doubling in its usage every year. That's just the phrase, not the word vulnerable, but the phrase we are all vulnerable now. And so if you look at, uh, as you just did, Catherine, but if you look at who's been very, we are all vulnerable now in uh, the news in the last seven days, uh, you find some surprising things. Well, we are all vulnerable now, according to The Guardian, to Ebola. Well, it's not true, but one could possibly understand that. The Sydney Morning Herald says we're all vulnerable to terrorism. Um, it's a particular obsession in Australia. Is there anyone from Australia here? Oh, that's a relief. Um, it's a particular obsession in Australia. They actually dominate the disaster and trauma literature. <laughs> which is really rather odd for that, for that country. I, I suppose I know half of it's kind of on fire and the other half's underwater most of the time. But nevertheless, it is strange. But that's where an awful lot of trauma stuff, which is what I do for a living, comes from. I also, but my favourite is there's a fellow here. You, I'm sure you won't have heard of him, but um, I haven't either. He's a guy called Roy Alec. And one of the other things I've learned in life is never to trust anyone who you can reverse their name and it sounds just the same. Okay, it's a very worrying thing. And he's the CEO and presenter of a television channel in America, sorry, Jen, uh, called God's TV. That's a nice, uh, ungrandiose title for a TV station, isn't it? God's TV. But he stepped down on Saturday because of a quote, moral failure. And it doesn't take much research to discover that he's been shagging someone else's wife, um, which is something TV evangelists are prone to do. Anyway, but, um, but his apology is somewhat diminished by what he then says, quote, this is something to which we are all vulnerable. Uh, no, we're not, Alec or Roy or whatever your name is. Brian Ferry, by the way, told us on Friday, just said we are all vulnerable. Stop. He doesn't say what to. He just says we're all vulnerable. Not all bad, though. This is the good news. Vulnerability is very good for certain things, in particular for dating. Now, I swear to God, this is news to me. I didn't know this, but I do now. There's, uh, if you go and find a thing called the Attraction Institute, I'm not making this up, uh, it offers courses in making men more attractive to women. Wish I'd known about that before. Um, but... Uh, In particular, it says vulnerability is one of your principal assets. And as I read my notes, I'm slightly worried that I did the research at work at King's on uh, Friday evening. um, Because the first one here, there's a website called HookingUpSmart.com. That says, Vulnerabilities Love Secret ingredient meetyoursuite.com. I'm really genuinely not making this up, but I'm going to have to explain this to our computing officers on Monday. Uh, The key to unlocking intimacy and live your legend net. It's the key to building up rapport during a date. So obviously vulnerability then is a jolly good thing for various things. Now, does it matter? Does it matter if everybody, older people, younger people, mentally ill, people in Australia, women, English cricketers are all vulnerable? It does. It does because it determines what we do about things and it's also not entirely true. I would take slight issue with you when you said that everybody knows that children are particularly vulnerable. Actually, they're not. They're particularly plastic. They're not particularly vulnerable. Indeed, if you look at Melanie Klein's studies of kids in the Blitz, you find what's remarkable about them is just how tough they were and how rapidly they adapted to the changing circumstances. And indeed, the great thing that we did that did dramatically worsen children's future development and mental health was evacuation, which was brought in as a response to the belief that children were uniquely vulnerable. So they all got evacuated and then they did become vulnerable because of six years of maternal separation. So there was a policy based on a wrong assessment of risk missed the fact that actually children are pretty tough. And second, it suggests that the exact opposite of what we actually know to be true People are not uniquely vulnerable. They're actually pretty tough. And in all the work I do with the British Army, with, with populations at risk of terrorism and so on, the real message is not how vulnerable we are, but the opposite. Most people deal with most things pretty well most of the time, but are rarely studied and rarely do we think about why. And we end up doing silly things. When I started in the roles that I have, we were in the habit of doing something called psychological debriefing, you may have heard of this. This means when anything goes wrong, whenever there's a disaster, before you know, before even the dust has settled, literally, not just metaphorically, the ambulances are still rolling around. Then, about 20 years ago, everybody was then held to stay back to talk to the trained counsellors. Do you remember the train? going? we still get it now, don't you? It says something's terrible happened in the news, and then the BBC says trained counsellors are at hand. We've all heard that phrase, haven't you? Trained counsellors. It's odd, that juxtaposition of training counsellors, because when you get on it, you know, when you deal with a doctor, you're going to have your appendix out. The guy doesn't say, hello, I'm your trained surgeon, does he? You'd be a bit worried (laughs) if you did. And you'd be worried if when you get on a plane, the chap says, "Uh, welcome to BA flight, I'm your trained pilot. You'd think, now that's a bit odd, isn't it? It kind of goes with being a pilot, you might like to think. The reason, of course, is the trained counsellors, one lovely study, show most of them actually aren't trained. And what they do is then it's, you're supposed to talk about what's happened to you, that disaster, talk it through, um, and then you'll be told about the various symptoms you might experience. Here's a phone number, et cetera, et cetera. And it was absolutely almost part of, of, of almost the rigueur. What well, we showed in a series of studies, not only was that totally ineffective, it actually made you twice as likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So you were more likely to have a breakdown if you'd had that session of train counselling for all sorts of reasons that we can discuss. It was because people actually aren't vulnerable, they're pretty tough and they didn't need help. So my advice to you then, if you belong to a group that's suddenly been declared vulnerable or you live in a community that's suddenly at risk, it might be a good idea to move. Because sooner or later, someone is going to come around and tell you to stop doing something or sell you something to keep you, quote, invulnerable or take away something from you. It has become a way in which you justify interventions, most of which are rarely needed and many of which make you worse.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Um, one of the dangers in setting up this debate especially in the current climate where as we've heard from everybody in different ways the idea of vulnerability is is pervasive and very rarely challenged um, amongst those that sort of depict people as vulnerable and certainly those who are increasingly depicting themselves as vulnerable but I am mindful that we have to be careful of not dismissing something very real that is going on. And so the danger could be with some of the tone of the debate is that we start to just say, well, just you feel vulnerable, you're ridiculous, you're not. And I, I think that we have to think about that um, and try and look at perhaps more about why it's become so prevalent um, and, and how we should respond. And so, Deborah and Mark, my question to you in a way is similar, although you're coming at it from teaching and managing a school and you're coming at it from support services... Is is there a danger that in starting to to, to question the amount of people who present themselves as vulnerable, that we do overlook people who really perhaps we should think of them more in that way, even if it goes against how we might want to think of them? So I'm thinking about your your pupils who you say they might see themselves as vulnerable, but you won't. And I just wondered, should you not see some of them more in that way if that's how they see themselves?
2: No. <laughs> so I think my, my role is to actually have a broader vision of what they are or might become, whatever that is uh, in the future. It's got to be based solely on what the school's shaping them up to do intellectually, because we're under so much cultural pressure not to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the, the idea of vulnerability has risen in importance as the ideal Of education has lost its way if it it ever was stable. But because I think there isn't a a really clear understanding of an ideal of education anymore, ideas of vulnerability are prevalent. But my my view really is that it could be vulnerability, Uh, it could be every child matters, it could be social exclusion before that, although arguably vulnerability shows that these words have actually lost touch with any social Anchorage now, and, and arguably social exclusion by definition was an attempt. But what so, I'm very worried that the autonomization of this kind of word uh, as, as presented to schools leads to it gaining a kind of authority. It doesn't need uh, to have any evidence behind it, whatever people say. You just get that uh, cultural understanding. Now, a lot of parents sometimes and uh, external services, support services, they, has, they actually have a lot of intellectual authority in schools. And outside schools, there's a lot of pressure to deal with the people in front of you um, in a non-intellectual way. And I think that it's, it has got to be judged very carefully. So I, as a guideline, I would say, as I'm on the leadership team of the school now, uh, it would be to say that in public, I wouldn't go down that road of using the, the, the language. But in private and in, in a very specific situation, I might be prepared to say, yes, that person is demonstrating some of the signs of what you call vulnerability. Let's get them the correct services. I just think it's very important that there's a cultural battle that is won by uh, intellectual ideas because of education being in, in working class schools like where I am. It's, it's still a bit of a fight. And you've got, you can't forget, it. it used to be a fight to get an education. It's not a fight to define yourselves as vulnerable. And it's got to be an argument that is never kind of given up on, in, in, certainly in my kind of schools. And this is kind of a, to me, a very well-meaning middle class aspiration that sometimes coming down, why aren't you doing this? But what we what think the thing that we're not doing is getting our kids who are fantastic intellectually into the top universities, and that's my public and private aim. But I, obviously, I do accept there does need to be specific care for those particular individuals that may or may not need it, but then backed up with intellect all the time.
1: Okay, and although I, I might want you to answer that question as well, one of the things that it, it, you're mm. saying in universities, there's more and more pressure on resources for support services. Do you think it's a bit coincidental that we're questioning the rise of vulnerability at the time when we've got those pressure on services? And, and it might be that you know, managers of schools and universities could use it as a reason to say, you know, get over it, man up, you know, and not have that support. Is there a, a danger about resource in that way.
4: I suppose if one were cynical one could say there would be but in, this, at the same, in the same year that we've really begun looking at this in some detail we've also increased the number of people who've, ac- who've been able to access our counselling service by 35%. That doesn't mean we've got more than 35%, uh, uh, 35% increase in people who are engaging in six-week spells of one-to-one therapy but one, what, what our counselling service is that and they are all trained um, and very well qualified and registered. But one of the things that they're doing now I is we 've being recorded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things that they are doing now is um, looking at enabling people to um, try to deal with their own problems where it is appropriate, and um, a well trained and qualified therapist should be able to um, assess where it will be where it's necessary, where it's priority resource for students to. Engage in more than that—the initial half hour that they have—and where it might be helpful for a student to look at another way of managing their own situation, their own condition, without that traditional sitting in a room with a chair and a bowl of potpourri on the table. Uh, my counselling colleagues will kill me for the potpourri—they don't all have that—but um, there is uh, there is a, an idea of looking at how students can help themselves where it's possible. Just on the, the, the rise of vulnerability, I think that universities are seeing an increase in the number of students who perhaps would not have been at, made it as far as university in the past because sc- schools are managing better. I'm not suggesting they're managing better because of uh, vulnerability and resilience training. I'm suggesting they're managing better because the law changed so that it's very, so schools now have to pay attention to things like disability, which includes mental health problems. And so students who may have difficulty... Um, may have not made it to university before because they would have fallen at much earlier hurdles, are now coming into university. So, I, I, we do see more students who will need support, and our preference is to prioritise that support w- to students who will most benefit from it rather than students who should perhaps be learning to manage their own situations a little bit more independently.
1: Jen, I mean, one of the, the difficulties of defining and putting a lot of emphasis on early attachment and those sort of c- contextual factors, is that more problems or experiences come to be seen as creating people as vulnerable. I mean, do you see that a prob- as a problem when you're trying to disentangle the factors that make people vulnerable, as you see it, that we just expand those factors as well? So, I don't know, my mother was you know, really cold to me for... The, I don't know, it, I mean, that was a trivial one, or my parents divorced. Does that ju- just mm. expand and expand the people we deem to be vulnerable?
5: No, I, th- I think it tells us a lot about where we should be focusing investment. And I think that a lot of what you're talking about, um, from what I can hear, is that you're struggling with um, trying to respond to an issue quite far down in the in the, the life cycle, when mm. actually what we should be doing and what, what there's very strong economic evidence behind is that if we invested more money and more um, support into family programs, particularly for those from disadvantaged backgrounds, then we would be getting a much, much higher return, not only in terms of public spend, but the, the real thing, which is that we'd, have, we'd be narrowing the gap, for example, in school readiness between rich and poor children. You know, When you look at uh, the, what we look at, there's a measure of school readiness that all children in their reception year will be assessed on. Only half of kids in the u k have reached this minimum level of school readiness, but when you look at free school meal or what used to be the measure of disadvantage of free school meals it 's only a third so If you then extracted that there 's almost thirty thirty forty percent difference by the time get kids get to school, and one of the biggest elements of measuring school readiness is social and emotional development so really once we 're talking about count, you know half an hour counseling sessions at university it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's a bit silly to be talking about that, I think. Okay, so Simon,
1: you, you know, in dismissing the rise of vulnerability in, in some of the ways you did, where should resources go? It's
0: well, that's, a, that's the whole resources. point, isn't it? The point about when you say any group is vulnerable, it invariably is followed by a plea for something must be done. Now, that's okay when we know what to do, and you made a very good example of parenting programs for kids with p- conduct disorders, and Royal College of Psychiatrists, and the mm-hmm. presence of... It's part of our appeal to all the political parties is to invest in precisely these programs. Why? Because we know from studies that they work. And they do reduce conduct disorder, they're economically effective, and they repay the investment uh, very, very quickly. The problem is that's an exception. Most of these programs, even when there are programs, don't work. And even worse, the act of labeling of someone as, quote, vulnerable is itself an intervention that changes their view of themselves and their future trajectory. And i can just give you two examples. I mentioned that one of debriefing. I didn't go on to say, why did it do harm? What could possibly go wrong with taking people who've been involved in some terribly traumatic event that day and asking them, how do you feel? What could possibly go wrong? And when indeed, when we tried to do the studies, we refused permission to do them for some time because that's exactly what people said. Well, there are lots of things that go wrong. First of all, most people get better anyway. That's the first thing. And they get better through chatting to their mates, friends, colleagues, doctor, GP, padre, you name it. So Mm. the intervention of someone who they've never seen before and never seen again is actually getting in the way of their own normal social network so there's what protects you. Second, it isn't always good to talk when you've had a terrible trauma, you know, with Mm. our soldiers, you talk for a while about football and your family. You've got to wait a few weeks before you're going to get on to how do you feel about losing your leg. Okay. And third, it takes away resources from what we need for the minority of people who six, ten weeks later, have now got psychiatric disorder. We then discovered there's no money left and all the the caravan has moved on. So it can go wrong. And on the changing people, we looked at twenty thousand soldiers who we knew were going to go to Iraq in two thousand and three. We screened them for vulnerability to breakdown. But we kept the data ourselves. We didn't share it with anyone. And then we found out who had broken down. Okay, it's in a nutshell, huge study. It did it in five seconds. It took ages to do. Um, Now we found out that actually we could predict those from on the basis of their drinking, their background, their symptoms before they went, those who were likely to break down after Iraq. The only problem was for everyone we got right, we got seven wrong. And that was with the best possible way of doing it. So that would have been seven people whose lives would have been ruined who would have been told that they were vulnerable, who probably would not have been able to get insurance, who would have been kicked out of the military, unable to do the job that they wanted to do for one we got right. That's clearly, utterly unacceptable. And it's not just unacceptable in, in resource terms. You've also intervened by declaring them vulnerable, and you have changed how they see themselves, they didn't think they were, and how others see them, other people didn't either, for no reason at all. And that's the problem. Declaring someone vulnerable is itself like all labeling an intervention. sometimes it can do good more often it does harm.
1: Okay, well, on that note, um, there are loads of questions here about resources, about labeling, about who is really vulnerable, what should we do uh, in whether it's education or other areas of policy and, and practice. So, in um, usual time-honoured way, I'll take three or four questions or comments and then ask the panel to come back. So, the first one is a gentleman over there in the striped shirt. Uh,
6: thank you all very much. That was uh, very interesting. And, and for me, then, it's, vulnerability is not what this is about. It's, um, it's resilience you know we've already sort of beginning to lose the word vulnerability and everyone's talking about resilience <laughs> because okay you are vulnerable all right well i don't feel vulnerable yeah but you are all right but but when you start saying this is what you need to do to be resilient the kind of intervention that you're talking about that's that's the really worrying thing because uh, you know i think how, how do you get resilience who who knows how you get resilience you might you might do studies but definitely trying to teach children, I'm a teacher, trying to teach children how to be resilient because you think they're vulnerable is sort of taking it to a a second level. So I think that the issue for us is to worry about resilience
7: more than the naming of people as as vulnerable. Do you think um, this uh, attempt to label um, yourself is um, is part of just a wider human psychological issue that has gone on through history and a label that gives you a large amount of attention and resources um, is also generally attractive um, because it all um, lots of these comparisons um, get me thinking to the um, advent of mainstream psychoanalysis um, d- during the 50s and 60s in in which it suddenly became apparent that everyone was a pervert with a disturbed childhood and likewise um, in political movements of the day when for example I believe well going to change its book post-war, that um, certain students at Frankfurt University once protested that their government's policies on um, allowing them to have um, sex at university were comparable to their treatment of Jews during the Holocaust.
6: I'm wondering if the battle about the use of the term vulnerability has already been lost, because it's absolutely embedded in government policy, and in particular policy around the provision of adult social care. For about the last 10 years or so we've had this definition of a vulnerable adult and an adult is vulnerable if you are in receipt of public services which is just about anyone who's got any sort of disability or or health problem. Um, And it's utterly embedded in the culture of social work and the work of family lawyers and the family courts and also agencies like the police who are constantly on the lookout for vulnerable adults being abused by someone or other. And I don't know how you start challenging that because it is, as I say, it's completely embedded in official policy and practice at the moment
1: thank you and the young man there
8: in Scotland you have um, epigenetic testing I believe at a young age for working-class children essentially kids at risk so you see if they've maybe been abused later in life they will be tested and there'll be an intervention there I mean intervention schemes we know there's wonderful evidence showing that they work but where is the limit of that where do we stop telling parents how to parent their children
1: Thank you. Great question. I'll come back. There's some more questions, of course. But, um, Jen, is there anything out of that, not everything you have to come back on, that you'd like to respond to?
5: Um, yeah, I guess there's... I, I, I wanted to raise a new theme to answer both your, your question and the, the teacher over here. I mean, when I when I started researching this area when I back when I was at Demos at this think tank, our starting point was how can we make the world a fairer society? We were interested in social mobility... And so our starting points were that actually social mobility has stagnated in this country for a very long time and that the level of inequality in wealth is just going up and up and up and up. And one of the, one of the areas where we can see uh, social mobility being impeded is because of big, big differences in development of young children. So I don't know if you've ever heard, heard of the marshmallow test before. Has anyone heard of that? Some people will have heard of that. It's, it's again, it's, it's a fairly old test. It was, uh, it was done in the States um, by go- a guy called Walter Mischel, very famous psychologist, and he took... <coughs> Groups of kids, he took individual kids, right. sat them down with a marshmallow in front of them, and said, All right, you can have this now. Or if you can wait ten, fifteen minutes, you can have another one. And so obviously kids responded differently. Some kids just stuffed it straight in, brilliant, great. Other kids tried to distract themselves, they'd look away, look at the ceiling, they'd sing a song, they'd like put their hands under their legs. Other other ones would sort of like try to wait and like look at the marshmallow and sort of like cuddle it and like eat nibble bits of it and so on. Whatever. Some people managed to resist, about a third. This was part of a longitudinal study. Ten years later, twenty years later, the kids who managed to resist that marshmallow were much higher on all manner of outcomes. Not just educational attainment, not just the type of jobs they went into, BMI obviously unsurprisingly, since it's about food. But there are lots of things <laughs> That were unbelievably associated to what happened. The kids who were in the study were between the age of four and six years old, and behind the, ki- the the information about those kids, the ones who were able to resist and the ones who weren't, were a whole range of demographic factors that that created. The, you know, kids from poorer backgrounds, from more disadvantaged settings, were struggling to develop self-control, and it was having a, a negative impact on all manner of factors in their life. So this matters. The evidence is there. We're learning more about how we can support it. It's not about didactic. The one thing that I, I do not believe in didactically teaching, this is the definition of resilience. Memorize it, and then that's what you'll be. That's not how it works. It's the same thing with parents. Interventions that work with parents don't tell them what to do. They, provi- they support better environments for them. They connect them to other parents in their community. They provide more child care. They, um, they involve uh, supportive play in children's centres. They're not didactic, this is how you do it. That we're trying to create better environments <coughs> that support responsiveness consistency and warmth between parents and children and that works and it it, and parents actually from my experience they're crying out for it there's so few interventions and programs and investment in early years compared to mainstream education we're getting it all wrong okay thank you Deborah
4: anything to come back to from any of the contributions responding to what Jen was saying in the comments about teaching resilience and so on I think that I would entirely agree with what you said, Jen, about the, you know, where there is very poor parenting in areas of deprivation. I would agree with all that. I trained to be a teacher in the 1970s. It's what we were taught, and so on. And I can see that as well. But I think one of the concerns that I have is that poor parenting may also be the parents who don't want to say no to their children, the middle class mm-hmm. parents whose decisions are, revolve around uh, what the children want. There's a very good article in the Times a few months ago, and I've completely forgotten the name of the woman, about parents um, who will pander, for want of a better word, to what the children want to do. If a child doesn't want that flavour of ice cream, then that it's instead of well, that's all we've got, so bad luck. It's trying to, you know, get the right flavour of ice cream and so on. The um, examples were a birthday party situation. But we see par- this is where I come to this parental involvement. Some of the people in this audience may be a similar age to me, and you kind of... I didn't go away to university, but it was very much an independent thing, and now parents, as I say, are not only coming to university, escorting their children, as I did myself with my own dear child, but then hanging around... <laughs> Being around, I've had parents say to me, well, I won't go until he's made friends and settle in. Um, and I have actually, I think I say to about five people this September, your child is not going to settle in while you're here. It's just not going to happen. People will not want to be friends with your son or daughter while you're there. But this was news to them. This was genuinely news to them. You know, they honestly thought there was this responsibility and taking the responsibility away from the child infantilizing i so mean I that,
5: that erodes resilience as well sure. doesn't well, it this is my but point. the difference is, people from affluent backgrounds have all of this yeah it's not good for them it's not good for building resilience but it's all they also have all of the cushioning supportive factors of social capital money yeah. connections so it doesn't matter as much as those who are not developing resilience on the other side of the track no, I'm, not a different way. I'm not disagreeing i'm not disagreeing that investment needs
4: to go preschool absolutely not 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 arguing with that but my point is that these are people who are coming not being resilient mm-hmm. not succeeding in many ways i'm not just talking about grades i'm talking about good education mm-hmm. which is about being autonomous okay
1: i, I want to come I mean, back to
4: the audience so simon is there anything yeah. quickly you want to come well,
1: back on i want to come yeah, back i mean
0: about. i mean the example you just used made me laugh and, and uh, uh, it, it was quite quite funny, I mean, there is a lot of good news around as most well as well as most people know with their own kids you know they can 't get you out quick, it, quick enough as, you know as soon as you unloaded the suitcase you 're off mate and, uh, and, that's, and and most you know most students, just like most people you know, are actually remarkably immune to these kind of things we, we We did a study in which we we gave people psychological briefing before they went to war. This was again it was later in the Iraq war, and uh, half of them got it, and half of them didn 't There were huge numbers. Uh, it didn't make any difference. Well, that's what you'd expect. But the best thing was when we followed people up, when asked them, did you attend the se- session on psychological debriefing, of which 3,000 had, only 20 or 30 said that they had and they'd all completely forgotten it. So most people can kind of cope with these things. But it's, it's coming back to that issue of knowing what works or not. Now, you've brought mm-hmm. in the issue of economics and how we know a lot of uh, kids who will have very poor outcomes come from poor uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Now, you might not know, actually in America, they did a huge trial on this that published only a few weeks ago. Huge trial in St. Louis, in which they took kids uh, and families, this is, from very, very bad housing estates in Missouri, where apparently if they're bad, they really are bad, and they moved them into better neighborhoods. But they only moved half of them, and the other half they didn't. And the girls did much better. They had lower delinquency, lower PTSD, lower depression, lower substance misuse. And the boys did exactly the opposite. They did much worse. Now, you could not have Mm. predicted that until you'd done the study. And then you can come up with various reasons as to why. So again, now, all praise to them for doing the study. It was a very difficult one to do, but the results were surprising. And when you do these kind of big pieces of social engineering, you often get, the history of our profession, psychiatry psychology, is we often get it wrong. We really do. Let's go back to Melanie Klein and the evacuation of kids from London. So we have to have an awful lot of humility when we start to make proposals like we need to do this and the other, because without the evidence, we will get it wrong more often than we get but it isn't
1: right. Can I, I know it's, it's really yeah. difficult, because <laughs> the panel yeah. wants to start doing this, of course. I'm going to ask Mark to come back quickly. I've got about a million hands. It the slightly well, the
2: question was, uh, is the battle lost? No. But the problem is this is becoming a discussion uh, between psychologists and psychiatrists (laughs) and saying they're getting it wrong. What people in normal teaching, where you just see children in front of you as normal, you don't have all the intellectual baggage about research studies, this, starting point, (laughs) where brain measurement... Intellectual baggage? Moving kids from one housing (laughs) estate to another, you know. I mean, you deal with the child in front of you and you say you can get somewhere if you really work at it, I teach you well, and university is a destination. But the, what the problem is at university, I want to get them to, is now, uh, as far as I can see, the academy teaches counselling. So that's not a really aspirational <laughs> endpoint. And as well as that, in our broader society, the authority of psychology is so high that you, it's very hard to, to... The vulnerability is a psychological word. It's cut loose from its moorings and it's telling actually telling a lot of people what to do. How do you build a case for talking to people in front of you as if they haven't got any issues, and even if they have, you're still going to go for it. That's the battle that is hard to win. It's hard enough in schools already um, because psychology is actually the discipline that is inside schools. It's not just a subject you study, and that would be great. It's a great subject to study. It's become the cultural sort of uh, judgment point for everything else that we do, and that, I think, is actually becoming an intellectual problem.
1: Okay, Questions? Uh, There's a woman
3: just at the front here in a white shirt. What I'm missing from this discussion a little bit are these wider political, societal and also economic um, perspectives. Why is it that we have started to categorize more and more men and women as at risk or vulnerable? And um, do you, for example, see any kind of link between this mental health crisis and economic crisis? And also uh, from my own research perspective, I've studied uh, young people who are quite unproblematically considered at risk or vulnerable in Finland. And these educational programs that are targeted to these young people. In Scandinavian countries, this discourse of vulnerability and at risk has uh, strengthened alongside the marketization of our Nordic welfare states. And uh, one uh, result of our uh, research is that these young people who are repeatedly categorised with these kind of labels learn to utilise these labels for their own benefits because they are smart and clever. Thank you so much. A Finnish perspective there.
9: At the risk of stating the bleeding obvious, it seems that the increase in the talk of vulnerability uh, goes hand in hand with the increase of the idea of uh, the world being a dangerous place full of threats. And perhaps, to answer the the point that was made at the the front about how do you combat that, is that you do it partly by debunking the idea that the world is a dangerous place full of threats. Clearly, there are things that we need to to learn about the world, and and perhaps we do that best by learning by our own mistakes and and, uh, finding out for ourselves. And Notwithstanding that you don't necessarily want to expose people unnecessarily to danger, particularly uh, lethal danger, that the most important thing we can do with, with regards to Uh, whether people are, you know, vulnerable to catching Ebola or whatever it might be, that the the most important thing that we can do collectively is to uh, let people know and advise them that they're actually not under threat quite as much as they may be being told by those who seem to have an interest in (laughs) promoting that.
10: Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, I thought there was a danger that the the discussion was on the side of um, blaming parents uh, for, for all of this, where I, I think for me it's important to look at sort of the wider political and, and social issues that have led to this. I think that there's myriad factors, but I think an important one has been the collapse of those sort of political claims. For example, the people that are often telling me how vulnerable I am are my trade union reps. Yeah. And if you look at the, the changing roles of the trade union, they no longer emphasise collective strength, mm-hmm. they emphasise individual vulnerability. So you get the rise of something like work stress, for example. <laughs> and I think vulnerability is the way many groups make their political claims today. You know, so it is a wider mm-hmm. like, political problem. I think it's also though, a way of evading professional responsibility at times uh, and also people losing autonomy. Andrea Hollomotz who's a sociologist, gives an example of a a young woman with uh, very mild learning disabilities who divulged that a few months previous she had been sexually assaulted, but she was over it, she'd coped with it, she'd dealt with it, and she didn't want it to go any further. Now, normally, that would be something that was respected, and everybody agreed that that woman had the capacity to make that decision. But because she was officially labelled a vulnerable adult, that confidentiality could not be respected and it got reported up and then you had a case conference and social services involved the police involved, etc, etc so that young woman was objectified because of this label and because of a sort of lack of professionals willing to make a judgement and instead hiding behind that label and the law Thank you very
11: much Economic or methodological failing in the, the idea that you could derive economic attainment from people's psychological state because I think I'm right in saying that the the best predictor of people's economic attainment is the economic attainment of their parents. That's to say that how wealthy your parents are is quite well uh, illustrated uh, most recently by Thomas Piketty Uh, inherited wealth is the clearest transfer of wealth it's legal, it's the condition Mm -hmm. under which our society is organised, wealth inheritance who does well the children of middle class and um, well-to-do parents. And the psychological effect is an echo, essentially an echo of that, and not a very good one either. And it strikes me, and, and more than that, it's the it's the theory which was called deferred gratification when Jackson and Marsden wrote about it in the 1960s, or original accumulation when um, a political economists of the 18th century uh, first coined it, when they sought to pretend that their uh, social situation of superiority to other people was because they had refused to take the marshmallow uh, and had saved the money, which was their original capital fund. And, of course, all people at the time knew that that was an utter lie because what they'd actually done is stolen it from other people. So the, the principle of deferred gratification as an ideological justification for economic success... Uh, is, as is well known and well discussed, um, a a, a capitalistic ideological lie.
1: And on that cheerful note, thank you, down to the front here, please.
8: Yeah, um, one of the um, problems with the vulnerability (laughs) issue in politics is that you seem to have a shift uh, in the last two decades from politicians being representatives of citizens being advocates of victims and the worrying thing about that is that it closes down debate so people are probably aware of this tory who said something about disability mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. week which actually when you look at it was entirely reasonable and he's witch hunted to the extent where he has to whip himself and apologize and lie and say he didn't mean anything and so on and that was essentially because people were advocating on behalf of the vulnerable or the victim. And as soon as you do that, you are invulnerable, those people, because no one will say anything against you. So it's a very worrying tra- trend. I'm wondering more generally whether this question, I really liked Mark's uh, point where he said, being invulnerable means sorting out problems on your own or for yourself, You know, not necessarily on your own, but, with other, but sorting out Problems. And I'm wondering whether the <coughs> vulnerability category, the at-risk category, can be seen as a form of regulation of freedom. That we're actually, as a society, very nervous and uncomfortable with freedom. F- freedom in terms of our experiences, dealing with experiences. Freedom in terms of interaction and relationships. So increasingly we get this category of vulnerability being introduced. And <coughs> somehow it seems to be, if that, that's what it, the essence of it seems to be, a regulation of people's freedom.
1: I'm going to take one more at the back.
12: It seems to me that vulnerability has kind of entered into the lexicon and into, you know, so many areas of life in a manner that is actually deeper than perhaps, you know, we're prepared to recognize. It it seems to me that in a sense people experience vulnerability as something that exists in power relations. So the relationship between a child and its parent, the relationship between a teacher and its pupil, between a priest and his parishioners, and so on and so on. It costs so many categories and areas of life. And that that's power relations itself express the possibility of vulnerability. And why, why would that be the case? I would argue that that's the case, just as parents, you know, are so fearful of allowing their children into the streets because they fear for the paedophile or whatever, as an expression of that. This sense of kind of people's own sense that I have no control over what's going on around me So therefore vulnerability is a manifestation of that sense of the inner loss of confidence that people have in the society in which they live and indeed more deeply in their own capacity to do something about what's going on in the society in which we live. I'm I'm keen to sort of follow the person somewhere there who said that the the nature of politics today or people's engagement in the process of trying to make or reshape the society in which we live is so kind of limited that... The, the corollary of that is vulnerability.
1: Okay, so Mark, can you come back uh, briefly, if you would, on any of yep. what's been just
10: asked?
2: Well, I wanted to say earlier about the, the nurse who felt that it was think, making her think about look at, looking at the way her patients, that probably proves that this is a, the correct discussion to have because that's how you can shift it. But I also agree with the last two speakers politically that the idea of citizen representative to citizen advocate, and, and I would say... There's definitely a rise in some what I would call third party advocacy of any kind, so that all relationships that used to be between teacher, student, teacher parent, uh, you know any, anybody that anything that used to seem just unproblematic there's normally somebody else on the edge of it that is trying that has authority from somewhere else to redirect that to break that autonomy and I think that is a, a genuine major problem so you, the speakers that identified it, I think you're correct
5: Jen. So, yeah, I wanted to pick up on the two comments about the role of politics and environment on all of this. Um, I, I think that is so, so important. When we talk about where resilience or character comes from, we're looking inside ourselves as psychological constructs and what's happening in the brain. But when you do that, you're immediately pushed outwards into looking at the environments that are conducive to healthy development, and that makes this absolutely, crucially, a political issue. So this is an issue for politics. It's an issue about fairness. It's an issue about how secure people are in their own lives, and how Mm -hmm. living in insecure environments can undermine um, the development of resilience. But I I did want to come back on a second point as well, which is to say that it's so undermining of aspiration to say that that that's that's all there is. Like we can we can affect things by how we feel. I, I love this particular example of it's a measure called locus of control, and it basically it's how much do you feel that you control what happens in your environment, and how mu- or how much do you think external factors control what happens to you? And they they've done big cultural studies of this, and unsurprisingly, in America, people have a, a more internal locus of control. They think they can shape their world. Anyone can be president. Aspiration culture. The UK is much more shaped by class consciousness. They have a more external locus of control. They think external factors shape what, ha- what's happened, what happens to them. But when you compare the UK and the US on pretty much any measure of social mobility, the UK is a fairer and more socially mobile society. So you actually have more opportunity living here than you do in the States. Nevertheless, having a a strong internal locus of control is what gives America its incredible entrepreneurial culture. It does, although it's less fair, it does lead to incredible amounts of value being created. So the reason I use that is to explain that environments matter, but so does how you feel. Those are both relevant things, and any full policy strategy or political strategy must absolutely look at both of those things.
4: Deborah? Right um, I very much um, liked the uh, analogy with, with trade unions being a member of one myself and I think that's I was just thinking my own I think that's true that there's a, a thing about supporting victims and people being vulnerable and I think that's happening with younger people with young people uh, with, with workers and with students and also the comment about don't keep telling people they're at risk, don't keep telling people they're vulnerable. We, we've, we've tried this year, just in the introductory talks that we give to students, to slightly modify the language so instead of saying things like "thanks to Catherine's um, help," at some uh, earlier on in the year, we've got to thinking differently. But rather than using a phrase that you used earlier, most people will be okay, will be able to manage most things most of the time. We're not saying that everybody should, but we're starting off. Most of you will be able to manage most of what's going to hit you in the coming three years most of the time. Um, on the issue of blaming parents or um, or not, I think that there is a very different attitude from parents now than there was 20 years ago. And I don't think it's only to do with the fees. I, th- I don't know if you see it in schools. I haven't been a school teacher for, for 20 more than 20 years. But there's much more, you know, you have to do something for my child now. We get parents trying to make complaints on behalf of the, the students, which legally they, they actually can't do because they're not the client. We do not have a relationship with the parents officially. So I think that's very interesting. The last point I wanted to make... Is um, the idea that Mark was raising that um, if somebody is seen as vulnerable, then that does take away from from the relationship, and I can see that in the university setting. If just people with a, people who are disabled, disabled students, whether they're dyslexic or have a mental health problem or a physical disability, are labelled as vulnerable, which I try not to do, and I hope we all, I hope that my colleagues try not to do, that does take away from the idea that this is a person who um, we are having to make some reasonable adjustments for to ensure that they can intellectually succeed, have as much chance of succeeding as any of the other students. And I think there is probably a risk, I need to think about that, of, of language that we use around vulnerability and, and students with disabilities. Thank you. Simon, if you briefly
1: come yeah, back. Yeah, about
0: point about you know, why trade unions now cut a rather sorry figure because they moved away from you know, the decades of solidarity and collective action. Absolutely Right. Most trade unions now, as far as I can see, seem to do stress at work surveys and, and lobby for better well-being. And that, I find that sad and tragic. And uh, alongside that is a loss of about, we've heard lots and lots of correlations in psychology and psychiatry. About the only thing we know fundamentally is the biggest threat to mental health, like suicide, deliberate self-harm. is not going to work. It's not having a job. And that hasn't changed for the, for the last hundred years. Someone talked about the risk society. And, uh, of course, that is you know a huge concept. And it goes... Unfortunately, with it also comes what we haven't talked about, which is the blame society when things go wrong. So if you, there are several healthcare workers in the audience today, you will all know now we're under this thing called a duty duty of candor to tell the truth, like we're in a massive truth and reconciliation commission. The only problem is we have the truth bit, but there's no evidence whatsoever of any reconciliation. So we have the first half, but not the second half, and it's not very pleasant. And from the point at the back about we should be telling people not to panic about Ebola, I'm not sure about that because the one thing we know is if you tell people not to panic, those who aren't panicking start to wonder that they're missing something.
10: <laughs> and those
0: who are panicking don't listen to you anyway. So it's not, it's not what we do in risk communication. But I was amused by what Lord Freud said because uh, what a great name to have. And, um, and did you see what he then said? He said that he had, for reasons that he didn't understand, said something he didn't mean. Now, I'm sure there's a name for that. I just can't remember what the name is, but I'm sure there is one.
1: I'm going to take one last round of points and questions. Yes, the person there.
0: I
6: wanted to challenge this idea that we need uh, studies, research and evidence to <laughs> understand this problem. Um, I mean, I was grateful for Simon for pointing out that those studies done in the 60s and 70s actually didn't show that children were vulnerable, but that they showed that children were malleable and adaptable. Um, I'm pleased you did point that out, Simon. But actually, we all know that, don't we? We, we all know it because we've all been children. I mean, childhood is never... Come on. No, I'm, not, I'm, not re- I'm really not going to lock horns with you for telling us. I just want to uh, address the, the the scientific way in which this problem is is understood, because It's really a question of common sense. We've all lived childhoods. Um, We've either had as adults, we've either had children or we've met children. And as adults, we meet other adults. I mean, really, to think that you're a vulnerable person who's going to be scarred for life and you're not able to cope with adversity, you've either got to have never had a childhood or you've got to be a hermit, or possibly, and I suspect this is the real explanation, You come from a certain strata of society which is paranoid about all these fears that you see around you. And you manage to get a a job, often with a quango, or a government department, or a campaigning charity, and you go to conference after conference where you meet other people who come from similar charities, quangos, and government departments, and you just talk to one another about your paranoid fears. (laughs) And the the reality of this is it's not a question for science. To understand the issue of vulnerability, all we need to do is use our own common sense and go out there and meet ordinary people.
13: I'm absolutely terrified of becoming depressed because I'm not. I don't feel depressed at all. But I I look around at my peers and my family and I just see depression absolutely everywhere and it's tearing people's lives apart. And I've been slightly surprised at the sort of vaguely flippant tone of this panel sort of going, you know, people need to grow up, need to stand on their own two feet. If you tell people they're vulnerable, that's what's making them vulnerable. And I, I sort of see the sense of that, and uh, I would like to agree, but I just feel like it, it is it, it runs counter to my lived experience. Mm-hmm. I feel that there is some sort of crisis going on here that no one really understands what's what's happening, and it doesn't. It's not just working class people. It's not just middle class people. It's not just people who had not not very cuddly childhoods. It seems to be affecting all sorts of people. And well, I've sort of run out of things to say here, but I, I just wonder. What's going on?
1: I'm glad Good you question. asked that because that was something I raised right at the beginning, is this the danger of being yeah. perhaps too dismissive.
4: If resilience is bounce-back ability, then there seems to be a paradox here that children need to
13: have something to bounce back from. I'm not advocating that we expose children to you know, severe trauma, <laughs> um, but we do seem to be micromanaging change Um, And I think Deborah particularly was talking about the transition, if you know, we're managing a whole range of transitions now from further to higher education, typically it used to be from primary to secondary, At my own school it's year nine to ten, and Mm -hmm. I think these are imagined
6: transitions, they are normal changes that children will experience, and I'm also a bit troubled about this notion of resilience as a set of skills that can be
13: taught, that we could view them as simply personality traits. Okay.
1: Thank you very much. I'm going to go uh, in the other way now. So, Simon, could you start, please, and then Jen and
0: Deborah. and Mark. I'm just picking up your point from the back just now. We're talking about vulnerability. Vulnerability is not a disorder. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a condition. It's not depression. It's not PTSD. It is merely a statistical prediction that you might be at risk of something, which you haven't at the moment got, and indeed you may not get, or you may. That's what we're talking about, vulnerability. And the problem is it is inherently very difficult to determine who is going to develop PTSD or depression or the consequence of abuse, or become a victim of terrorist, or indeed a terrorist who is going to make a medical mistake or become a victim of a medical mistake. All of these are inherently difficult. And therefore, we react by the default position is to assume that therefore everyone is vulnerable because we cannot predict who actually is. In order to justify interventions that perhaps should not be justified hence because of the things i've just said all of us in the health service now spend an average of 30 hours a year on mandatory training for mainly events that won't happen for disorders that we don't deal with ourselves and indeed don't make any difference at all It is inherently difficult. And, you know, the reductive observance would be, let's take another example. It's inherently difficult to know who's going to send a text message of their genitals to a Daily Mirror journalist. (laughs) That is very difficult to predict. And it could perhaps be anyone in this room is capable of doing that. Possibly possibly is. You've all got mobile phones, I'm sure. Therefore, the answer is we all need training, mentoring, monitoring and courses to determine what should be the correct methods we have for using text messages. It's obviously nonsense. The only people who actually do this are conservative MPs. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
5: you. Jen. Um, yeah, I guess I just, I wanted to end on two notes. So One thing that is actually, I didn't think was going to come up today, but which has ended up being a theme, which I find quite depressing, is people's um, lack of interest in evidence. Um, because where you don't, you know, especially in the context of public policy and public spend, and especially at a time when there's so little money and um, there's just not enough to go around... the the evidence is more important than ever. I mean, only 1% of children's services in this country are actually considered evidence-based. What does that mean? do Do you really want to be in a situation where you'd rather not know if something was working because at least then you won't know if it isn't and that would just be embarrassing. It's, it, it's, it really upsets me to see that people aren't interested in that. What you get in the absence of evidence in policy making is conviction politicians who spew out ideas that they have based on whatever stereotypes and background they come from and that to me is not the right way to spend public money and to and to, to create a better world. And then the, and the last thing that I really want to say is that, again, the, this whole agenda around, about, around resilience for me, is seated in fairness. The fact is, we live in an equally unfair society, and one of the biggest, re- one of the increasing reasons for that, increasing reasons. Someone said a moment ago that isn't it actually family income that is the biggest determinant of what happens in your life? Well, the first major longitudinal study I did on this issue was using the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a longitudinal study of children <laughs> born in the year 2000, and what we found there was that the quality of parenting, and I'm not attacking parents, I'm talking about, you know, if you live paycheck to paycheck, you've got an abusive partner, and you're socially isolated, and English isn't your first language, it's going to be a lot harder for you to set down, and you live in a crowded house with five kids, it's going to be a lot harder for you to set down the warm, consistent environment that is most conducive to your child. So it's not about attacking parents, it's about providing more support to them. But what we found in that study is that parenting quality was a bigger factor on children's early development and ultimately educational attainment than was family background. So yes, they're related, but they're also separate issues and we can support people and it's much more aspirational and invigorating and, and inspiring to, to know that you can change your life. It's not just down, it's not just socially determined, you're not stuck in the family you're from, you can do things to change. That to me is the way towards a fair society and that's always been um, what I think is the animating idea around resilience.
4: Uh, Deborah? In response to the issue about depression, I was very careful um, in my opening remarks to, to, to say that I was not talking about di- diagnosed conditions and that we do have students coming with, long, with long-term diagnosed conditions, which, in which depression is probably, depression and anxiety are the two that we see most. Um, in our university health service and counselling services. The Royal College of Psychiatrists uh, d- a few years ago did a, um, a report on um, mental health. Did you know this? Mental health in higher education, working with the Student Health Association, which used to be called something else. Time. But, no, okay. um, but there, there were serious issues raised there. University is not a therapeutic community. It is um, a s- Studying for a degree, studying seriously for a degree is stressful hard work is stressful challenges are stressful and we're not i'm not talking and and people prone to depression i believe stress is uh, something which can trigger or exacerbate depression so we're not talking about that we're talking about the I'm talking about the image of vulnerability that people take on themselves very often. I am vulnerable because I get anxious. We've had um, things such as I should be allowed extra marks or to reset an exam because, I quote, my favourite one was there was excessive wind, which I thought was to do with somebody's guts, but actually was to do with it was windy one night when they were revising. Therefore, they should be. I kid you not. Um, And my housemate's dog died. Therefore, I should be. Somehow, you know, I'm therefore vulnerable, and these are real things that have happened in the last year. They're just two of them, and it's this kind of idea about life is being life is throwing me lemons, and I'm not going to make lemonade. It is not about diagnosed mental health illnesses, which we see, we we are seeing increasing numbers of coming in being declared at entry to university. As I said before, I think part of that may a lot of it may be political and so on, but I think part of that is that schools are getting better at supporting that making reasonable adjustments for their students to enable them not to drop out before A levels. Thank you and finally Mark.
2: Okay, so very very briefly. I mean it's I was thinking this Stephen Hawking. So he's probably vulnerable. Mm. Nobody thinks of him as vulnerable. You think of him as a uh, it's probably I think he's got some fairly flawed moral characteristics, but he's pretty good <laughs> at science. I mean that and to me that's the whole heart of this. I mean you just said you're not happy with the evidence, but it's not that I'm, I'm not flippant about not having the evidence. I'm serious about education. And education wasn't ever based originally on any evidence. It's just like we need to do it as a society. Uh, wherever, you know, If you go back to ancient Greece or if you, if you say this today is part of a society that is continuing to educate itself. If you're concerned about justice, I would say to a child, don't read a longitudinal study. Read Plato. It may or may not work, but I believe that's got more to it uh, in terms of the the people in front of me, not not only now, but as as the children that I teach. I'm trying it actually, and we're going to try and run a conference at our school where some of the children are going to read Plato and talk about it. I don't know if that that will that will work, but to me, that's much more inspiring, and it's not based on evidence. That's the point. We need to, we need actually to put some of this evidence aside, stop talking about brain sizes, functions, and all that stuff, and just say. Our society is serious about education. Let's work out how we're going to educate people to take them forward. That's it.
1: Okay. Can I thank my panel and also thank you very much as well?